First of all, I'll just say thanks for having me, and thank you everybody for coming out. Hi, my name is David Robinson, and I'm a full-time pastor at a church in the west end of the city. It's called Westminster Chapel. It's a Baptist church. That I find myself pastoring would have been a total shock and surprise to me 15 years ago. And whenever I would talk to people at parties or functions where you're just making small talk and they would ask me what I did and I would tell them I study the history of religion or theology or however I would put it so that they would vaguely understand what I was talking about, the immediate follow-up question would always be, oh, so you're going to be a, a priest or a minister or something like this. And I've probably hundreds of times responded no to that question. No, I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm not going to be a priest. But in the last year of my PhD, I was invited to come and work part-time at Westminster as a pastor. I'd actually been invited a few times to come and serve part-time there as a pastor. Always said no. But one time I was asked and my immediate response wasn't no. And that kind of surprised me. And I said, all right, I'm going to think about it and pray about it and just sense the Lord calling me just to try that out, try pastoring for a bit. And sure enough, after a few months serving in that church, it was very clear to me God was calling me to be a pastor. And so right around that time, I'd finished up my PhD dissertation, which is in Patristics, the Church Fathers, and ended up pastoring from that time till now. And I think I'll be a pastor the rest of my life. But I didn't think so. So I never trained to be a pastor. I think I'm, I've I'm prepared for it, but I wasn't preparing for that. I was planning to be a scholar and an academic and a professor, uh, but the Lord had other things in store for me, and I'm very glad for where I am now, very, very happy to serve as a pastor. But God has been kind to me, and so I still get to teach courses in universities uh, here and there. I teach at Tyndale. I sometimes teach around here at TST. I don't really have time for research and scholarship these days. Try to get a little bit in here and there. But basically, that's, yeah, that's what I do. Pastor for most of the time. Do a little bit of scholarship, a little bit of teaching. Uh, I'm also married. Somebody asked me how long I was, I've been married. Uh, Julian did. And at the end of June, it will be 17 years we've been married. We've got three kids, Samuel, Leah, and Lucas. And Julian, you were asking me about family life and what that's like, and I think... To summarize my answer to that, I think it's very humbling, and also it's a, a means of grace. It's, God has been very kind to me through my kids, through my wife, and I see evidence of his grace every day in my home, and I'm very thankful mm. for that. So originally, though, before you got into pastoral ministry, you were a patristic scholar. You still are, but you were interested in patristics. Let's, uh, let's start there. Who are the, the fathers of the church? How would you describe who they are? Well, looking at it historically, if you look at the minutes of the Council of Chalcedon in 451, you'll see in some of the language there as it, re as it refers to authoritative sources. There's something new that emerges in the 5th century, and we see it earlier in some of the letters if you know anything about the Christological controversies of the fourth century, Cyril and Nestorius and the letters that they send back and forth and they're debating the divinity and the humanity of Christ and how we understand the relationship of those two things. But they're always citing the authority of the apostles and citing the authority of Scripture. And this is typical of Christian writers 
all the way from the end of the first century, into the second century, third century, always citing scripture, you know, as the scriptures say. But there's a new authority that emerges in the correspondence of Cyril and Nestorius, and you see it in the Council of Chalcedon, where Cyril will argue, according to, he'll, he'll introduce a statement that he's going to make about who Christ is. And he'll say, according to the fathers, or sorry, he'll say, according to the, the apostles. And then he'll say, and the fathers. He adds that. And I think that even the Christological statement the, uh, the, the famous excerpt of the Council of Chalcedon, the definition of Christology there, begins by saying, by, by arguing that they, we are following the Council, we are following the teaching of the apostles and the footsteps of the fathers. Mm-hmm. So right there, there is a reference to Scripture and the fathers. Mm-hmm. And to be orthodox is to be following the footsteps. I think in the Latin translation it's the the vestigia, so the vestiges of the fathers. To be orthodox is to follow in the footsteps of the fathers. And so there's a, what's assumed there is we all know who we're talking about, the fathers. Now, they are referring to the, the bishops who gathered at Chalcedon, but they're also named. So Athanasius is cited. He's a father. He's an authority. Uh, Origen is sometimes cited. So there, there are those who are seen as the as the defenders and the, the custodians of orthodoxy and of right doctrine. So that's how in the, in the, in the early church, the fathers were viewed the, as the custodians of orthodoxy, the defenders of orthodoxy, the teachers of orthodoxy. And that's, that's still, a, I think, a generally good definition of the fathers. They are the, they are the defenders and the, the custodians, the defenders, the promoters of orthodoxy in the early church. Now, there's big questions about how we define orthodoxy, but that's, that's how they were referred to. So authoritative leaders and teachers from the early church. Now, you can get into dates and who's, who's who, and the church, especially the, the Roman Catholic Church, would later name the doctors of the church. These are the faithful teachers. Mm. You know, in the West, it's Leo and Augustine and Jerome and Ambrose. In the East, it's uh, John Chrysostom. It's... Um, I shouldn't have started this, but Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, others. <laughs> you know, but they, they start to list them. These are the authoritative right. doctors, teachers yeah. of the church. So they become canonized. So these, these church fathers, I mean, one of the interesting things to me today is I mean, you have your Ph.D., in the patristics, I'm doing a Ph.D., some of us have Ph.D.s, but these guys... I mean, they didn't get PhDs. What, what gave them authority? What, what gave them their training? What gave them the right to, to speak out as authoritative people in the church? It's good to recognize that most of the church fathers, if not all of them, came from a place of privilege. Mm-hmm. They all had educations that very few people had access to. Mm-hmm. They all came from families who were fairly wealthy. They all enjoyed, uh, they, they had the leisure of study. You know, most people in, in late antiquity or in the Roman Empire don't have those privileges, don't have the time, don't have the money to receive the education that they had. And so the reason that we even know of the fathers and have their writing is because, A, they could write. 
and they wrote well, and it was preserved. So that, that meant there was a lot of education in the background there. So they were all very well educated, all of them without exception. So that on the one hand. If you're looking at people in the second and third century, so in the second century, think of someone like Irenaeus. And in the third century, think of someone like Cyprian of Carthage. Irenaeus is recognized as an authority because of the way in which he defended Scripture and defended the, the rule of faith, which would later think of that as the creed, the Nicene Creed, but there's earlier manifestations of that, and it was seen as a summary of what Scripture teaches. Mm. It's just a summary of the basic message of Scripture. You might even think of it as a summary of the gospel. So that, that was the authority that Athanasius had, that he defended the Word of God and he defended right faith. Cyprian the same, and you read any of the church fathers and they are just soaked in Scripture, so they knew the Bible inside and out. And so I do think it's the, it's the authority of Scripture that comes through, and people see that and hear that. But already by the second and third century, the church is very well organized, there's a very clear institutional structure. If you read the letters of Ignatius, dating from the very beginning of the second century, the year 100, or the 100s, he's already speaking of the importance and the authority of the bishop. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the scholars call it monoepiscopacy. But he's not a Presbyterian by any stretch of the imagination. He's definitely not a Baptist. So the authority of the bishop. Mm-hmm. And he'll say things like, to listen to the bishop is to listen to Christ. Mm-hmm. To submit to the bishop is to submit to Christ. And that becomes the, the, the general institutional structure of the church so that from an institutional perspective, they have authority. The church fathers are bishops. They have institutional authority, which is widely accepted and recognized. Mm-hmm. So Cyprian can say the kinds of things he says, and he can, he can write letters, and he can decide on how the church ought to respond to something because he's a bishop. He has the authority to do that. Now, in the second century, there are challenges to the authority of the bishop. That comes in the form of Montanism. So there's a prophetic challenge to the institutional mm-hmm. authority. In the third century, there's the authority of the confessors or the martyrs who challenge the authorities of the bishop. So a confessor is someone who, under pain of torture, did not deny Christ. And sometimes even bishops would deny Christ under pain of torture. So in, in the popular mindset, the confessor is someone who obviously, because of the, the strength of his or her faith, they have a certain authority because of that. And so there's some tension between the authority of the confessor and the authority of, of the bishop. That's in the third century. Cypri- Cyprian writes against that because there's a conflict. Some confessors are saying they're letting people back in the church who have fallen. Right. And Cyprian says, you don't have the institutional authority to do that. In the fourth century, there's a conflict between the bishop and the monk. The monk is outside of the institution of the church. People are going to the monks for, the advi- for advice. Monks are deciding disputes between people. But in every case, the prophet, the confessor, the monk, there are, all, all of these movements are always brought into the authority of the church mm-hmm. at some point. So Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century will, will bring the monks into the institutional 
hierarchy and, and organization of the church. So there is an institutional authority. There's also, I would say, the authority of piety or holiness. And so people recognized in the life of Cyprian, in the life of Irenaeus, in the life of Augustine, they recognized a certain integrity. So there's a holiness there. They practice what they preach. People used to go to Milan and just sit and watch Ambrose. Augustine talks about this. He was, he was such a person. So Ambrose would be working away in his study. He'd be reading. He'd be writing letters. He'd be writing sermons. And there would be people just in his office saying nothing the whole day, just watching him. Uh, monks had the same kind of authority. You know, it was the sanctity, the holiness of their, of their life, their piety, which carried with it a certain authority. That's why people were so impressed with Anthony, uh, one of the, the first great monks that Athanasius writes about. It was the sanctity of his life that carried with it a, a certain authority. So all that to say, their defense and their teaching of Scripture, the institutional authority, but then also I'd say the... the the holiness of their lives. Uh, all, all of that, I think, is, gave them their authority. Basil of Caesarea, uh, he, he writes contra Eunomius, against Eunomius, and you know, this heretic. And, and the way he begins is by like hammering Eunomius for the way he's not living a holy life. Right, so he is, you know, he's a drunkard. He's, uh, I mean, he goes to the theater. You know, he does like all sorts of scandalous things. So it's really, you know, and these these things are. This is common whenever you were attacking someone who, and you wanted to say they were a heretic. The way you really strengthened your case was by saying you're not a holy person, because there was an understanding there's a that you can't have proper theology without holiness of life. Right, and th this continues on into the medieval, and, and I mean, Martin Luther's great at that, right? But it seems like something like that's lost today. So, I mean, supposedly when I graduate with my PhD, you know, I can, I can teach in like a seminary or something like this. But no one's, no one's looking at, you know, do I drink too much or do I whatever, you know what I mean? I don't know, have we lost something in the correlation between right theology and holiness of life? I don't know, what, what, is there something for us today in that? Yeah, we have lost something, to be sure. A good example of this is Gregory of Nazianzus, who is a very interesting person and probably relatable, especially to 21st century folks mm -hmm. living in a city like Toronto. So his father was a priest. He, he was a pastor of the church in Nazianzus. But he also came from a family of some means. So he had a very good education. He, he went to Alexandria, great place to study in the ancient world. Went to Athens after that. His two classmates in Athens were Basil of Caesarea and Julian, a certain Julian, who would later become known as Julian the Apostate, so a pagan. But he, he, for 10 years, he was away from home from, his, till, from the age of 20 to the age of 30 and just had a charmed life. Best education, hanging out with these guys. Came back to his, to his hometown of Nazianzus when he was 30, and kind of like a millennial, you know, not married, you know, trying, <laughs> couldn't commit to anything, you know the, the, you know, the typical presentation of what millennials are. 
and eventually just starts to work in his dad's church. But he's also interested in monasticism. And there's a monastery in, um, in Pontus, and he thinks, oh, I'd like to go there, check that out. You know, Basil's big into this stuff. I'll get into this stuff. But he finds that life there is too austere. You know, he's, he has a hard time sleeping. It's very uncomfortable. You know, it's bad food. He can't keep up with the ascetic life, even though he, he would love to do that. So he comes back, and he kind of goes back and forth. Right. Does a bit of pastoring, does a bit of retreat in the, in the monastery. But he's, he's, he's a, a brilliant thinker and a brilliant writer. I mean, he could, he, he, he's probably the best writer of all the church fathers in terms of his, uh, the beauty of his writing, you know, just his literary ability. In the year 380, the end of 379, the emperor who's an Arian and has been promoting Arianism for a long time, Valens, dies on the battlefield. And the new emperor, Theodosius, is not an Arian. In fact, he supports the Nicene Creed, the Creed of Nicaea, and wants to promote the Nicene cause. So there's a council in Antioch. I'm getting to answer your question about holiness. I believe you. Just telling you a bit about Gregory. Just to say that he's a normal person, like we can get him, even though we I'm prefacing all this so we can see his comments on holiness in mm -hmm. context. He's not suggesting we be superhero Christians. So there's a council in Antioch and, the, and of various bishops recognizing, okay, here's, here's the new emperor. Now's our chance to promote the Nicene cause. Now the years of persecution by the Arians is, come, is over. We need, we need somebody in Constantinople to promote the Nicene cause. And the city was almost 100% Arian. All of the churches are Arian. And they decided that council, let's send Gregory of Nazianzus there. Let's send Gregory. Because he is somebody who will, he, he's familiar with the upper classes. He's got relatives there who are pretty well, well off, well situated in the city. And if anybody can defend Nicene Orthodoxy and make it seem, uh, not just give it legitimacy, but for, for the upper classes to see that, hey, the Nicene position can be defended well. Mm. You know, there's, um, there's merit to it. Gregory's the man. So they sent, they sent Gregory there. And I think he had a cousin or an aunt who had a villa, which he converted into a church. You know, it's a church plant meeting in her, in her courtyard. And he begins preaching sermons on the Trinity. We have something like 45 sermons of Gregory, and about half of them were preached in his ver the very short period of time that he spent in Constantinople. And many of them are on the Trinity. Now, five such sermons became known as the theological orations. Just masterful. Uh, they, they represent a masterful defense of Trinitarian theology. Mm -hmm. They are clear. They're reasonably accessible. Mm -hmm but profound and deep and beautiful at the same time. Anyways, they're the best. Sermons 27 to 31, theological orations. So he, he's preaching about Trini the Trinity in these sermons. But I think one of the first sermons he preached there was Sermon 20. And there he's wading into the theological debate that's going on at the time. And I think it's Gregory of Nessa who wrote somewhere, you know, everywhere you go, people are discussing, you know, the generation of the sun, and they're talking about theology, and they're arguing about it wherever you go. 
And Gregory of Nazianzus observed this, and he says, you know what, people are, they, they learn the slogans, they, they know how to argue the different positions, but the, their, their theology lacks a certain depth. And his opponents, the eunomians, tend to emphasize too much just mastering certain terminology, certain concepts, certain slogans. You know, you, you, you equip yourself with those things, then you can go and, and you can fight and have debates with people about mm -hmm. theology. And it's, very, it's similar today with, with, the kinds of, with the kind of theological debate you, you read in the comment section on Facebook. You know, all these debates that people have about whatever, whatever the issue is. So that was going on. And Gregory basically says, before anybody can wade into a debate about the Trinity, about the Holy God, you must first stop and look in the mirror and, and, and consider whether you yourself are a holy person. And he says, he doesn't say this exactly, but his argument in that sermon is basically, only a holy person can study and teach holy things. And what he's arguing there is that it's a sanctified mind that is able to understand holy things. And he's saying, simply put, you're, you're, you just won't understand what Scripture says and you won't understand who God is unless the, the Spirit of God is at work sanctifying your mind, giving you a, a illumination. Mm -hmm. And that illumination, that clarity of thought, that vision of God only comes through moral transformation and spiritual transformation. It's that simple beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you're not pure in heart, you're not going to be able to see God. He's, he repeats those arguments in his first theological oration, uh, oration 27, he says the same thing. Unless, unless there is the unless you have that moral transformation, unless there's sanctity of life, he says, unless you obey the commandments of Scripture, you won't un you won't be able to understand theology. You won't you, you're not in a position then to teach theology. Now, I think Christ Himself says something like this in John chapter eight, uh, verses thirty-one and thirty-two. He says, "If you are truly my disciples." you will keep my word, keep my commandments. Mm -hmm. And then he says, for then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But what Christ is saying is, obey first. Obedience then leads to understanding. You will know the truth, and freedom. The truth will set you free. So Gregory is operating from that same, those same presuppositions. Holiness and, and obedience are a prerequisite to theological study. Now, anybody can pick up Gregory's books and repeat what he said. Hmm. Anybody can study theology, and you can repeat what others have said about it. That's not the same thing as you yourself knowing what Gregory's talking about. Hmm. You yourself knowing the God that Gregory worshipped. And for Gregory, the whole point of theology is to... Is to define and motivate our worship. We worship a triune God. That's why Trinitarian theology matters. So there's a big difference there, too. We, you, can, you can study Scripture. You can study the fathers. You can 
repeat what they say. You can think about what they say. That's different than knowing the God that they worship and worshiping that, that God yourself. And that was, Gre- that was Gregory's concern, that he would lead people to, to the right worship of God, not the right talking about God. So I, I do think in, in terms of what theological education should look like and what theological formation should look like, the formation of character, the formation of godliness, the formation of piety, of holiness, that's an that's a absolute prerequisite. So that's probably a longer answer than you were thinking, but Gregory is still a very human person, all that to say. No, I like, I so like, he, stru- I like he struggles with yeah. all the same things we struggle with, yeah. you know, and he, was, he had self-doubt and he was needed affirmation and I'm sure he would have had Twitter and Facebook and would be looking at the likes and everything else, like, you know, how many, who's retweeted me? And, you know, he would have been there too. Just a normal guy. Ginaz yeah. G- is, is the technical designation, that, as opposed to Gregory of Nyssa, Ginas. So that's how we, at least I, I, I learned that. So for the average, like, congregant, for the person in the pew, why should they care about the fathers? Or put it positively, you know, what, what benefit does, does one get, just a normal sort of person, from getting into the fathers? And mothers, too, by the way. There's... there's they're, they're called the patristics, but there were, there, were, there were mothers of the church as well uh, thrown in there. Yeah, there are stories of very famous monks who were revered, abbas of the desert. And then when they died and their bodies were being prepared for burial, they discovered they were women. Right. <laughs> so, anyways, some contemporary scholars get very excited about that kind of thing. Sure, <laughs> sure. For other reasons, but anyway. Yeah, so why should the average person in the pew care about the fathers or read the fathers? You know, that's yeah. the question. So I, I don't know that, that the average person in the pew needs to study patristics, you know, have, have a, a broad understanding of the history of the Roman Empire and late antiquity and no Greek and Latin and all that. So no, no that's, not, that's not required. However, the, the fathers in their own day... We tend to focus, when we're, when we're studying the fathers, we do tend to focus more on their more polemical and theological writing. So, you know, we're interested in, in Cyril, uh, the, the letters of Cyril and Nestorius. We're interested in Basil's Contra Eunomius because, you know, it's this theological debate. But the fathers were all pastors, and they were all doing regular pastoral work, just as pastors today do. They were conducting funerals. They were officiating weddings. They were grieving mothers who had just lost a child. They were arbitrating disputes between members of the congregation. They were praying for people. They were giving people counsel on, on big life decisions, all of those things, and all the time. And we also have in the writings of the fathers their sermons, their letters, so for Augustine, we have all kinds of, his, we, have all, we have his theological treatises and his polemical treatises, but we also have his sermons and we have his letters, and often letters to members of his congregation. And there, there's where I think people in the life of the church today would benefit from, from reading that kind of thing, the sermons, the letters, and where the fathers can be, can be pastors mm-hmm. to all of us. Yeah. 
And you'll find there that the fathers, they know the Bible inside and out. And so they're, oh, they, they provide biblical counsel, biblical wisdom in their writings. The fathers have a lot to teach us about prayer. And they themselves were committed to prayer. And how, what they teach us on prayer. So in the third century, we have Origen's treatise on the Lord's Prayer where he speaks about prayer and he gives an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. Tertullian, he has a treatise on the Lord's Prayer. Cyprian has a treatise on the Lord's Prayer. So they, they not only expound and explain the Lord's Prayer to us, but they also talk about praying generally, the practice of prayer, how we should pray, when we should pray, where we should pray. These are all very practical questions, which I think would, would greatly enrich the life of the average Christian. Mm -hmm. So I just think in, in terms of our own personal piety, our own personal interest in growing as Christians. We, we can read that, the, the spiritual writings of the fathers and benefit from it greatly. And they're accessible. It's not too hard. It's not, they're mm. not talking about sophisticated theological stuff. Now, just generally, why Christians, gen, uh, average Christians in the pew should care about the fathers, I would make the argument, first, they're the ones that gave us the Bible. They, they, they are the ones that decided these books are in, these books are out. So I think they're trustworthy for that sake. Like we, we appreciate the gift of the scriptures that we have. Right. Uh, they are the ones who fought over the doctrine of the Trinity and Christology. And so in many churches, we confess the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. They're responsible for the content and the articulation of those creeds. So we, we're, we, they really do provide a certain foundation for the church. Right. Now, I'm, I'm a committed evangelical Baptist, so I'm not, you know, I affirm sola scriptura. But there, there's ju it's, it's just a given. It's just a fact that the fathers are foundational to, to the church that right. we have today. Yeah. You know, we take for granted the creeds, the scriptures. Those right. are all the, the, the legacy and the, uh, the heritage of the fathers. Yeah. Who do, who do you recommend people get into first if you're gonna if you're gonna look at some some of the fathers who who do you pick up is it Augustine's Confession where do you start Well, just so I can be help myself think through this, I'm just gonna go through chronology and East and West. Okay, <laughs> I'll throw out some titles, you know, if that's helpful. But in the second century, it's definitely good to read Irenaeus. You don't have to read his Against Heresies because it's very long and sometimes very complicated and convoluted. But he wrote a little book on apostolic preaching where he summarizes the, the preaching of the apostles. Uh, wonderful little book. Yeah. So I would recommend that. Uh, read Tertullian. Read his Exposition on the Lord's Prayer. is very good. He wrote a defense of the future resurrection of the body. His treatise on the resurrection. A beautiful presentation of anthropology, of eschatology. So there's just some wonderful phrases mm. in there. He begins with, a, with a, a pr in praise of the flesh, mm -hmm. in praise of the human body. And he gives all the reasons why we should celebrate our, our body and our flesh. And he says at one point, think of the implication of the incarnation, that the word became flesh. And then he has us think about Genesis 2 and the way in which God was forming Adam out of the dust. And he says there, as God was forming Adam out of the dust, 
he had in mind the image and the form that he would one day take. Mm -hmm. You know, you read lines like that, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's very inspiring. So, yeah, that for Tertullian. In the third century, Origen's difficult to get into, but his treatise, on, again, on the Lord's Prayer, beautiful. So read Origen on the Lord's Prayer. In the fourth century, which is kind of the, the golden age of the church fathers, I would read Athanasius, not on the Incarnation, read Athanasius' Letters to Serapion. Letters to a, a, a priest who has questions about the, the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Because in those letters, he summarizes his whole argument for the defense of the Son, the divinity mm -hmm. of the Son. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get Athanasius in a nutshell, his Christology, <coughs> right there. And then a beautiful defense of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Athanasius is so important, because he not only defends the divinity of the Son, he's the first one to defend the divinity of the Spirit and articulate that. So letters to Serapion. And then if you want some, some monastic spirituality, read the life of Anthony. It's a little weird, but it's also wonderful and inspiring. So the life of Anthony, Athanasius. Read Basil and the Holy Spirit, a beautiful exposition of the church's faith in the Holy Spirit. Read Gregory's Theological Orations. You can get them a nice little paperback uh, version, copy, but especially his, his Sermon on the Holy Spirit also. A beautiful articulation of the doctrine of the Spirit. Yeah, Augustine's Confessions for sure. Uh, the first nine books are, again, a beautiful description of the Christian life and his conversion. Books 10 to 13, if you've read the Confessions, you know something strange happens in book 10, and he gets very philosophical, and you might wonder what's going on, but yeah, the Confessions are great. Any, any of Augustine's sermons or letters would, would definitely be worth reading. Uh, Leo the Great, Bishop of Rome in the middle of the 5th century. His sermons are short. They are, from a literary perspective, beauti uh, beautifully presented, but just a wonderful pastoral presentation of Christology. Uh, so his, and, and he preaches through the church calendar. So by that time, there's a church calendar. So he doesn't, his sermons are all on ch church feasts, sermons on Ascension, sermons on Pentecost, sermons in the Nativity. So Leo the Great sermons, for sure. Yeah. So we're into the 5th century now. That's probably pretty good. That's enough. In the 6th century? Yeah, no, just leave it on. Leave it on. <laughs> All right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, sure. Is that good for you guys in terms of sources? Read the Fathers on the Lord's Prayer. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I threw it Sounds like there. a good way to start. Yeah. Not everybody's a sort of patristic nerd, and, and so, you know, you need to know kind of the, what, to, what to get into, right, to start. You know what? I don't, I, people don't ever ask me these kinds of questions. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is sort of like <laughs> the average years of bottled up. Like <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. I'm glad we, you know, gave you that uh, opportunity. So I guess uh, since this was in the sort of promotional stuff uh, for tonight, I guess we'll, we'll talk about two kingdoms a little bit, recognizing that I'm no, no expert in this. And, and maybe, maybe the way to get into this is to is talk about the relationship between the church and the city of Toronto. Let's start there. Like, where, what, what is the status of, you know, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, so, like, the, the relationship between the church and the city is different there. Not always in good ways, as, as you may be aware. Yeah, it's different here. And so, how would you describe that to someone like, like me, not from here? 
what is the relationship between church? What, what is the church right now in, in Toronto? I think in my ordination paper, I had to give my statement of faith. And I identified the church as the, some technical language, I guess, but you're all theologians, so I identified the church as the liturgical and catechetical center of the kingdom of God. That's the church's work, liturgy and catechesis. That's, that's, that's our business. That's what the church should be doing. So the church in Toronto should be the liturgical and catechal center of the kingdom of God in Toronto. So it's the place where people worship God. And I would include in that prayer, preaching, sacraments, mm -hmm. singing. That's, that's what we should be about. Mm -hmm. And that should be robustly happening, mm -hmm. you know, liturgy. And catechetical. So... We, we have been commanded to disciple the nations and teach them everything that I commanded you to do. Mm. We should be doing that. So that's where in our priestly identity, our Levitical identity, the priests were the worship leaders in Israel, but also the teachers. So uh, I just read this week Leviticus 10, where Aaron and his sons are appointed to be the ones who will teach the law. You are to instruct the law. Mm. You see this in Nehemiah chapter 8. The priests come to the people, Ezra reads the law, and then the priests go down, and mm -hmm. they give the meaning, give the sense, they, they teach the law. So that's, that's, what the, that's what the church should be doing also, is discipling the city, teaching the city the Word of God. Now, that's happening within the church in terms of Bible studies and discipleship, but that's also what evangelism is, the, the proclamation of the gospel. Mm -hmm and calling people in Toronto to worship this God, the one true God, to, to join us in our liturgy and teaching them what that means, what that looks like. And initially that means we are proclaiming the good news of Christ. We are proclaiming the gospel, mm -hmm. that there is forgiveness of sins because of the death and resurrection of Christ. The implication of that is you're a sinner. So, you know, a very, clear, a very clear articulation of the gospel, announcing sin, announcing God's grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sin in Christ, and, and then a welcome into the, into the community of God's worshiping people. So that, that is what the church does. Right. Now, I do think in terms of its gospel ministry, there is a, a practical outworking that you see in the, in the Old Testament where Israel is meant to, the people of Israel are meant to care for one another, care mm -hmm. for the poor. You know, we, we care for one another in the life of the church. So the church does need, is a community where, yes, there's worship and, and teaching, but it, it's also the body of Christ where we are caring for one another. Mm -hmm. And a, a robust priesthood of all believers means that we are praying and supporting and caring for one another. So that, that needs to happen. And then also, Scripture tells the people of God to be particularly concerned for the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. So in a city like Toronto, we're concerned for the widow. We're concerned for the single mom. We're concerned for the elderly. We're concerned for the orphan. So again, the children of the single mom. 
Uh, I do think issues uh, related to life and the unborn are, are where the church should be. We're concerned about that. Mm -hmm. That's the orphan. And then the refugee, the sojourner. And there are lots of re refugees in mm -hmm. a city like Toronto. So I do think the church has a, has a mission to those three, three groups. Now, there's all kinds of other aspects of the, uh, of the life of a city, which I don't think the church is necessarily particularly called to serve in as the church. However, Christians are called to serve in those areas. So the kingdom of God is not limited to the liturgical and catechetical work of the church. It's not limited to that. So the kingdom of God in involves family, it involves economics and politics and all, all, every aspect of society, of, of uh, arts and all those things. So if the church was not in Toronto tomorrow, yeah. if, if Westminster was gone from its neighborhood, why would your neighborhood suffer? And what do you want your church and the church in Toronto to do that's of significance that Toronto would need the church? I went to a, an urban planning meeting a couple of years ago. It had to do with condo development in our neighborhood. And one, somebody that works for the city in the city planning department gave about a 20-minute presentation of the neighborhood. So here is the street of Roncesvalles, and here's historically what's happened. And they looked at the, the, um, the streetscape, so the kinds of buildings we have there. And, they just gave a bit of a history of the, of, the, of the neighborhood. Nowhere in their survey of the history of the neighborhood did they talk about the churches on that street, which are pretty imposing. There are two huge Catholic churches. It's a historically Polish neighborhood. There is a very large United Church, and then there's our church. It's a big Baptist church. It's been there for 100 years. In the survey of the history of the neighborhood, there was no mention of the church. And in their description of the, the streetscape. So here's, here's the profile of the buildings. They mentioned schools, libraries, the kinds of businesses. There's a three-story building here. There's this building here. The most imposing buildings on the streetscape are the four churches, mm. not mentioned. Mm. And that was telling. I think many people in, in, my, in the immediate neighborhood, they walk by the building all the time, but they don't think about what goes on there. So if that building were to disappear, people would notice the absence of, you know, the architectural change. <laughs> but but I, I, for many people, the, the church has nothing to do with their day-to-day -day life. Mm. Now, this sounds um, maybe harsh or exaggerated, but for many people in the neighborhood, it would make no difference if the ch that church was gone. Mm. Maybe. They, they may not notice it. But there's lots that's unseen that's going on there. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate the significance and the effect of the prayers of God's people in a city like Toronto. We don't, we don't see the difference that makes. Mm -hmm. Take the church out of the city and we might see the difference in 20 years, that ju just the, pr that the, the prayers of the church, hmm. um, the, the effect of the prayers of the church for the city. 
I do think as you look through Scripture and you, you see the examples of the faithful remnant in Israel and the ministry of that remnant and the prayers of that remnant, God does look in favor on places because his people are there and they're praying. So we don't know what would happen if the church was gone. Many people right now are living their lives and whether the church is there or not makes no difference. Mm. But they may not appreciate the, the significance of the presence of the church in its worship. So I'll, I'm trying to say there's, there's, there's something there that's not immediately obvious. Right. Now, our church has a school. There's 100 students in the school. The neighborhood does notice that now because they're all out at recess running around in their sure. uniforms. And so the, the neighborhood notices that. They're very glad for it. They love to see the kids and hear the kids. Now, that's one area where I think the, the church can start to have a real tangible presence in a city like Toronto. This is controversial for some Christians, but I do think the church needs to take up again the work of education, of educating the next generation, of educating children. It used to be what the church did. If you think of the missionary move, the missions in the 19th century, take a place like India, for example, that's what missionaries did. They'd start hospitals, they'd start schools. And our church is concerned, uh, we've started a school, and we also want to work towards caring for the elderly in our community and starting a hospice care. I'd like to see the church in a city like Toronto do that more and more and more. Now, right now, the government does that. The government does everything, and we're used to it. We're Canadian. The, 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 the state does everything for us. And we, we, we're all, that's, that's all I know. I'm a Canadian. I grew up in Canada. The state does everything. But there are, th there are ways in which I think the church needs to reclaim some of those, the care for the elderly, education. So I, I'd like to see the church in Toronto doing that more and more and more. And if there were 10, 20 schools like our school in the city of Toronto, I do think we'd start to see a difference. And uh, that... I think we, that would bear fruit in a way that's much more tangible, right. invisible. Okay. Is that answering your question? Yeah, it's a begin, yeah, it begins to. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, yeah, that's another conversation. The two kingdoms thing, I mean, there's some particularities in there that we could get into. But there's time for more beer, and feel free to continue conversation. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening.